Good morning. All right, take your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you and you have your little device, you can open that up too. Or if you want to scan the QR code, you are welcome to do that as you are turning there. I just want to remind you of something incredibly important this week. Uh, I'm not going to embarrass all of them because the one who I would like to embarrass, I can't see yet. So I'm going to let the Buntons just pretend like I'm not talking about them. If Robert was here, though. But Wednesday night, 6.30, we're going to meet here for an opportunity to pray over them as they get ready next weekend to head back to PNG. It has been an amazing couple of months to have them here. And uh, we're excited for what God has in store for them. We're excited for how God's going to continue to use them there. And we're also going to admit it kind of stinks that they're leaving again. Amen? Amen. But we will celebrate the fact that when God called, they answered with a resounding yes. And so, so that is to be admired. And so we get to gather on Wednesday night and wrap our arms around them, make fun of Robert one more time before he goes, be nice to Amanda because that's what we're supposed to do. Um, but as a church family, we are going to be praying for you. We're glad you've been around. And I'm going to move on now. Um, thank you for those of you that responded to uh, yesterday's email. I sent an email out yesterday and just said, hey, what, what um, <clears throat> passages come to mind um, about hope? What, what scripture are you going to cling to um, <clears throat> that has to do with hope as we walk through 2024 together? And let me, let me start by saying this. Uh, I got not just one, not just two, but three or four answers that were like this. And these are the ones that, I mean, I'm glad you all sent me scripture, but these three or four were really exciting. They were, I don't know, I'm new to this, I'm hoping you'll tell me. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Actually, what I'm going to do, though, is sometime today, probably tomorrow, we'll post it on Facebook. I'm going to compile. There was about 50 or 60 verses that came in from y'all. And I'm going to compile them all and put them out there. And, and my encouragement to you, is this is what I plan on doing with them, I'm going to walk through them one a day as 2024 starts and just pray through them. Because some of them are, um, well, it's scripture, all of it's amazing. But some of them are particularly poignant, like Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. Matthew 7 Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain falls, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Fight the good fight of faith, it says in 1 Timothy 6. Isaiah 41 came up a few times. Don't fear, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 46, God is a refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, though the earth may tremble, the mountains may topple into the depths of the sea. Psalm 91, he will cover you with his feathers, you will take refuge under his wings. There's a picture. His faithfulness will be a protective shield to you. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when the rivers, oh, sorry, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord, he answered me, and he rescued me from all my fears. Some good stuff right there, isn't there? 
That's hope. Hope is not something that we just get in here on Sunday morning and dribble on about because it gives me something to talk about for 35 minutes. Your hope, and please hear this out of a spirit of love, your hope is absolutely worthless if it can't carry you through the dark times that await you at the bottom of this hill. If you come into this place on Sunday morning, you're like, my hope meter is just filled full, yoo And you get in your car and you get that phone call and you crumble. Your hope isn't actually your hope. It's this delusion that you have. We need real hope. Real hope is found in our text in a very surprising way this morning in Matthew chapter 2. You're familiar with some of the story. The wise men have come. They showed up in, in, in Jerusalem and they said, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? And, and King Herod there in Jerusalem is like, so I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and he was deeply disturbed. And it says that not only was Herod deeply disturbed, but the rest of Jerusalem was deeply disturbed along, along with him. Why? Well, let me give you a little background as who this Herod guy is because it plays really uh, a key role in what we're going to talk about this morning. Herod was this insanely jealous old man who was ruling over the land of Judea at the time. He, he was a dude who would stop at absolutely nothing to protect his position, and, and he would stop at nothing to eliminate every threat that existed out there. So, so in fact, this is, this is how far he would go. He, would, he, he killed his, <laughs> this is odd, his favorite wife. I have a favorite wife too, but I only got one. But he had a few. <laughs> Which is actually, it's kind of funny, because this favorite wife's name is Mariamne. Mariamne. His first wife had a very um, eccentric name like that. Mariamne is a very eccentric name. I had to look it up to figure out how to say it. His other wife's name was Doris, which I don't understand how that works culturally, but it's cool. His favorite wife, Mariamne, he loved her so much that on more than one occasion, he made everybody aware of the fact that when he died, she was to be put to death as well, because he couldn't possibly live in eternity without her. That's love. <laughs> But over time, things went sour in their relationship. He puts her on trial for threatening his, his rulership. And he has a full-blown trial with witnesses and everything. And one of the key witnesses that speaks against Mariamne is this lady named Alexandra, who happens to be, get this, Mariamne's mom. He puts her on the stand, and she testifies against Mariamne. The, the trial ends. Mariamne is put to death, and Alexandra then, thinking she is in a seat of power, stands before everyone and declares herself to be queen because King Herod is out of his mind. Then why did you say that? Because she was immediately put to death without a trial. Herod executed two of his sons with Mariamne, Alexander and Aristobulus. They were put to death because he suspected that, that they wanted him out so they could take his position. And they weren't the last of Herod's sons to be killed. He actually killed his firstborn, Antip Antipater. I don't know if that's how you say it, but uh, he was heir to the throne. And evidently, uh, he was plotting against his dad. And so his dad, Herod, had him put to death five days before Herod died. Um, this all led Augustus, Caesar Augustus, to say about King Herod, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Josephus, the historian, tells us 
that when Herod knew that his death was drawing near, he was, he was overwhelmed with this concern that nobody in Jerusalem would mourn his passing. Wonder why? But he had a plan. So what he did is he called for uh, this, this huge group of distinguished gentlemen from Israel to come into the place where he was, which is in Jericho, and he had them captured and placed in the Hippodrome, and they're left there. And what he did, Herod said to his sister and his brother-in-law, when I die, I, I want people to mourn for me, but I'm afraid they won't. So when I die, I want you to put all of those men to death, because then most certainly there will be weeping and mourning across Israel. That's Herod. Now, that didn't actually get carried out because his sister, um, Salome, not only does she have a cool name, but she wasn't as demented as he was. But that tells you why all of Jerusalem was concerned when Herod was deeply disturbed. These wise men, these magi, these, these guys who mixed the wisdom of culture and society and the study of the heavens and ancient religions, these pagan men come from the east into Jerusalem. They begin asking around about where this Messiah is, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews, and Herod doesn't know, so he asks the people who do know, the chief priests and the scribes, and you'll remember that they tell him, well, of course, Micah 5.2 tells us that this one's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. Herod sends the wise men to do his dirty work to find this child, and they come to Bethlehem, and they find this little boy with his mom and his dad, and they, they offer him the gifts, the gold, frankincense, the myrrh. And then something crazy happens, Matthew chapter 2. We start in verse 12, and I'm going to read the rest of the chapter to kind of set the pace here. After they'd given Jesus these gifts, verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by a different route. And after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So, Mary and Joseph... 
have to have their heads just spinning after all these wise men have shown up with these gifts. And they're like, we, we can't go back to Herod's, we can't go back, so we go a different way. And after they leave, we don't know if it's that night, but it certainly seems, according to the text and with the language that's used, it was very shortly after that. Mary and Joseph have to be just, just trying to figure this out. How do, you, how do you fall asleep? How do you fall asleep when, when these incredibly wealthy and wise men from the East have shown up and, and put not just gifts before your child, but they have fallen on their face in worship and adoration of your child. How, how do you just be like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get consolidate, good night. Don't you think your head is spinning a little bit trying to comprehend? It actually says Mary and Joseph were amazed when they saw all these things. They, 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 they knew, I mean, the angel had told them, but did they know, no, right? I mean, that's why the song got written, Mary, did you know, no? That's the real song, actually. I mean, we know you knew, but did you, did you know, no? That's next year's song, come back for Christmas Eve. I'm writing that one myself. <laughs> um, yikes. But when they finally lay down, try to drift to sleep. I'm guessing it wasn't like the sugar plums dancing in your head kind of sleep. And it certainly wasn't for Joseph because his old friend, the angel of the Lord, appeared. Remember the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, hey, your, your wife's going to have a baby. This, this angel of the Lord appears to him again and says, listen, you need to get out of Bethlehem. Get Mary, get the child, and take off to Egypt. The language infers that they went that night immediately. So they headed off into the safety of Egypt, out of reach of Herod, uh, just to get away from it. And actually, history tells us that there was a large group of expatriates who, who had moved out of Israel into Egypt. Probably around a million Israelites lived there at the time. So it was a wonderful place for Joseph and Mary and the baby to go and kind of blend into to, to lay low for a little while. But as they go back in Jerusalem, about a five or six mile journey from Bethlehem, Herod finds out that he has been duped. And it says that he, he flew into a rage. And as the young couple is on their way to Egypt, Herod has sent his soldiers into Bethlehem to do the things that Herod does. And he massacres all of the baby boys who are under the age of two in Bethlehem. Where did the age two come from? He, you remember back in the story, Herod asked the wise men, when did the star appear? So he's doing his math there, trying to figure out when, how old this child might be. And so just to make sure he covers his bases, he probably went a little younger than he needed to and a little older than he needed to. And, and he had the baby boys murdered. At that time, there were probably about a thousand people who lived in Bethlehem. So you're talking probably in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 little boys whose lives are taken from them. You can imagine the shock that just overcomes the entire town. We'll get back to that. Time passes. We don't know how much time. King Herod dies. And God tells Joseph, it's time to bring your family back to Israel. But, but you can't go back to Bethlehem. It almost appears as if when Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem, they found a place they would like to call home. But, but, but God speaks to him in the dream and says, you can't go back to Bethlehem because Herod's son, Archelaus, who's actually uh, considered historically much more violent than even his dad, Herod, is ruling over Bethlehem. You shouldn't go there. Instead, I want you to go to Nazareth. And so Joseph and Mary and Jesus go back to Nazareth, which is where Joseph and Mary originated from before they came to Bethlehem. And there's the story. 
And you're all like, yeah, hope. I see it all over the place in that. <laughs> um, I'll admit, it's not as obvious as some of the verses that I read earlier, but it's real hope. Not some manufactured mumbo-jumbo. That some dude stands up in front of you every Sunday and gets you all hyped up into a frenzy so that you feel better about yourself. No, this is real hope. This is a hope that admits that there is real garbage out there waiting for you. And yet the hope can carry you through it. A hope that doesn't just remain in spite of tumultuous times, but a hope that thrives in the middle of chaos, a hope that is worth holding on to, a hope that you and I need to understand as we head into yet another new year and get ready to flip the calendar. So where in the world do you find hope in this story? I'm gonna run through two pretty quick and I wanna park on one in particular, but there's three areas we see it. Before I do that, I need to do a test just to make sure that you're all still with me, just to make sure that your brains haven't completely shut off in the week between Christmas and New Year's, because that happens, amen? Amen. Couple extra candy canes and you're like, ha. Okay, so, you ready? So let's see, I just wanna see how you react to this. Let's see what you do, you ready? Here we go, I'm gonna try this, it's a test, here we go. All right, thank the Lord that worked. Just want to see if you're awake, let's see. The first area we see hope is verse 15. Was, this was done so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt. I have called my son. All right, we're going to do a little Bible trivia. You ready? So, which prophet was it? that said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Just shout it out if you got it. Hosea! And some of you are like, I don't know my Bible that well. Instant Bible scholar. I bet you there's a note on your Bible somewhere. Does it say Hosea? Yeah, that can save you thousands of seminary expenses. Just look at the little notes. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> uh, Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, to be specific, specific. There we go. Um... Hosea is talking about uh, how God delivered his people from the land of Egypt. You remember how God did that, right? You remember how God delivered his people through these miraculous plagues because Pharaoh wouldn't let his people go? I mean, that's the, the Charlton Heston movie. You understand what I'm talking about, right? So that, that we're all familiar somewhat with that if you actually endured that entire thing because it's so very long. But you know the plagues. The plagues begin very, blood, very simple. None of them are simple, sorry. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail comes down. You got um, locusts and then total darkness. And then the, the, the big one, the, 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 the granddaddy of them all, the one that, that kind of ends the whole thing is, okay, so now if you don't have the blood of a lamb on your doorposts, then your firstborn is going to be taken. Your firstborn is is going to die. And so, so you get to that, and, and again, you want to talk about weeping in Bethlehem. There was great weeping and mourning in Egypt as a result of this final plague, so much so that Pharaoh finally relented and allowed these Israelites that had been enslaved for hundreds of years to leave Egypt. And it was this miraculous deliverance out of Egypt. It was this merciful act of God getting them to leave their enslavement. And actually, what Hosea tells us and what Matthew confirms for us is that, that was actually a prophetic picture of Jesus himself and what he would do for us. 
So that the families are instructed, you, you take a lamb and you have it in your home for four days, which imagine that for a second, right? It doesn't just take a lamb, kill it, take its blood and put it in the doorpost. It's take a lamb, go home to your children and let it play with it for four days. Ugh. You take away a box after Christmas morning, they're like, I can't live anymore. And now you're, you're taking their pet. <laughs> But you, you take this lamb after, after four days, you put the blood on the doorposts, and, and if you have done that, then they get to experience the very mercy of God because what's going to happen is that the angel of death is going to pass over, and he's going to see that the payment of death that was required has already been paid. And so he will pass over. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is a, is a better Moses because he didn't just offer a lamb, he offered himself. The ultimate Passover sacrifice was offered to offer to you an exodus, a deliverance from your sin. Jesus is this greater Moses as he's come to lead his people out of the captivity of sin through the wilderness of brokenness. His rescue of us is a greater exodus. He, he, he rescues us from this life that is constantly crushing us, oppressing us. He has delivered us away from the slavery that is ours to sin. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. That's pretty hopeful. That's one. Number two, I'm actually gonna skip to the end of the chapter, verse 23. It says, then he went and he settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. All right. So using our Bible study method from earlier, anybody know where that prophecy is? Anybody got a note in there that says, this, this is it? You don't. Because nobody knows. It's one of those tricky ones. Matthew does something here that he doesn't do anyplace else in his book. So when he quotes a prophet, he actually quotes them in the plural. This is what was happening when the prophets uh, said, said this. This is the only time he does that. The language that he uses here, very general, not as specific as elsewhere. And so what you find is there's not a single verse in the Old Testament where it says he shall be called a Nazarene. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you barely see Nazareth mentioned at all. So what in the world's happening here? So Nazareth was a place that was... Um, I will, <laughs> There's towns that come to mind, but none of them I should mention publicly, so I'll be quiet. We'll just say that it was the, um, the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, uh, a place for the lowly and despised. That's why in John 1, when Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, his response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was, or to call somebody a Nazarene was kind of a slur of sorts. All through the Old Testament, as the Messiah is spoken of, as Jesus is prophesied about, particularly in Isaiah 53, we find this. Jesus was despised. He was rejected. We esteemed him not. We looked down upon him, assuming that his punishment was his own. So what can happen here, can be happening here, is they could be saying, like the town itself, Nazareth's most trustworthy son would be humble and despised, which is, which is quite a thing to say about Jesus, isn't it? The Son of God, the one who created everything and sustains everything, came to be one of us and allowed himself to be looked down upon like that. King Herod looked down upon him. 
the scribes and the chief priests never even left Jerusalem when the report came that he was born in Bethlehem. He was just this lowly little child who came and grew up to die for his enemies, like you and like me. But where I really want to, I guess, is the way to say this, focus our attention as we spend the last 10 minutes together is in verse 18. Because it's a hard passage to wrestle with. Um, There's a lot of hard passages in the Bible. This one just catches us sideways, I think. Herod has murdered the little boys in Bethlehem. And it says in verse 17, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. That verse is a picture of hope that we skip right over every time we read it. In fact, this may not surprise any of you, but Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, did not show up in the list of verses that were sent to me yesterday. I know what verse I'm going to cling to. Everybody's crying and weeping and mourning. Woohoo! Oh, uh, no. Now, hey, wait. Got to do this one more time. You ready? There's a point, I promise. <laughs> verse 17 is telling us that there is, there's mourning happening in the city of Bethlehem. And it's fulfilling what another prophet has said. This prophet is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 is actually where this is talked about. You understand, God brought his people Israel into the promised land. He he miraculously and mercifully leads them away from Egypt, walks through the wilderness with them, leads them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, provides food for them, manna on the ground every morning. And he just does all of these miracles for his people in the wilderness wandering and then brings them into the promised land, the place that had been promised to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before. This is the moment and they, they get there and when they get into the promised land, what they end up doing is sin so absolutely consistently, persistently and defiantly that God has to punish them and he sends them into exile. So around the year between, between 500 and 400 um, B.C., this nation, the Babylonian nation, comes in and they, they attack Jerusalem. They decimate the city, absolutely destroy it, and they take a whole mess of the people out of Jerusalem and they hold them prisoner in a place outside of Jerusalem, outside of Bethlehem, called Ramah. This is where Rachel was buried, the, the matriarch of, the, of Israel. And while they were in Ramah, what happened was this. The Babylonians began auctioning off their captives to other Babylonian families and people as slaves. So imagine seeing the Babylonian army come into your home. Watching them take your child, your children, your husband, your wife, and then you. They lead you to this town outside of your home where you're all kept prisoner, not knowing what's about to happen. 
And one by one, they set you up in front of these folks who stand there bidding on you. And one by one, your family is taken down off the auction block and handed to somebody, and they walk away with your child, with your children. You have no idea if you're ever going to see them again. Can you imagine the... I can't even, I can't even think of the right word. <laughs> Weeping doesn't even cut it, right? The hysterics. Mothers weeping for their children, children weeping for their mothers and their fathers. That's the picture of Jeremiah 31. But it's not just a picture of 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. That angst, that brokenness, that heartache. That's something every single one of us can identify with. In Jeremiah 31, I mean, it's a direct quote. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. How, Frank, is that hope? Well, because that's not the end. It's hope because this is what happens in every Jew's mind when they hear that verse. Because they know what comes next in Jeremiah 31. They don't hear about the weeping of Rachel and like, well, that's it. Such a sad story. No, no, no. No, no, when they hear there was weeping in Ramah, there, there is this enthusiastic hope that fills them because they know what comes next. Let's, let's throw the next verse up there. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from, from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears for the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration. Your children will return from the enemy's land. What God is saying is, I know there's weeping and it's going to last for a nighttime, but joy is coming in the morning because your exile will come to an end. Don't weep anymore. Put your tears away. There is hope that is coming. God gives them that promise right there in Jeremiah 31. And so when they hear Jeremiah 31, 15, they're being quoted in Matthew 2, verse 18, immediately their mind goes to, wait a minute, weep no more. There's hope. I don't have time to develop this completely, so bear with me. I'm going to throw one thing at you, and I pray that it makes sense. Actually, that's my prayer every Sunday, honestly, but that's okay. <laughs> um, Jeremiah 31 isn't just the exile is going to be over. As that chapter teases out and continues to be laid out by Jeremiah the prophet, he also says to them, hey, listen, there is also coming this new covenant. This new covenant is going to be incredible. There is going to be relationship. There is going to be discipleship. There is going to be knowledge. You and I are going to be at peace with one another because of this new covenant that will come one day. That's what Jesus is talking about on that day when he says, this is my blood in the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is fulfilling the rest of Jeremiah chapter 31. He's saying, exile will be over. It's going to be garbage. It's going to hurt. 
It's gonna test you to no ends. But I need you to know there is hope because exile will be over. So on one hand, it is awful news. I mean, that, that's terrible. All these babies being taken from their families. Parents, moms, dads mourning and, and weeping. And so it's horrible news in Matthew 2. But at the exact same time, there's good news. Because there's hope in the middle of that hurt. And if there's no hope in the middle of your hurt, what kind of hope is it? If your hope can't sustain you through dark days, is it, is it really hope? No, it's not. And let me tell you this too. In the middle of this culture that we live in, and Jason said it exactly right, this, this year has been, we, we can say this every December 31st, by the way. Because as we stand back and look, it's like, who would have called that? This is insane. Yes, every year, it's a whole nother level. It's something else, right? But as you stand there and, and, and you, you look and you try to comprehend what it is that's happening and you try to make sense of it, the world is like, okay, let me help you make sense of it. Are you ready? Okay, so if you understand the principles of evolution, this explains it perfectly. No, it doesn't. It blows up evolution. How are things getting any better? Hurt, darkness, frustration, depression, murder, war, natural disasters. How does that explain that? It doesn't. Mysticism doesn't explain the difficulties. Your, your, Your goofy prosperity theology thinking does not explain what is happening. The only thing that makes sense of all this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says this world is so messed up. This world is broken and darkness continues to be here, but there is a light. And he's come into the world and the darkness cannot extinguish him. No matter what the unthinkable difficulty is, there is hope in the middle of your hurt. The story isn't done yet and it won't be done until we're home. You and I are exiles. I have no clue what 2024 holds. But we should take heart because no matter what comes of 2024, there is one who's actually turning the pages of the calendar for us, saying this is in my hands, not in yours. There is hope. There is hope for every single one of us. We are way too familiar with the pains and the hurts of this sinful world. We, we know suffering in our lives. We know suffering around the world. And we, we know that in our sin, we're enemies with the Savior, but he has come to lead us out in this new exodus. He's come to deliver us from our sins. He has come to end our mournful exile and to bring us hope in the midst of hurt, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of death, in the midst of January 1st, through December 31st, 2024. We have hope. His name is Jesus. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is so very consistent, that it constantly points to your goodness, your kindness, your love and affection for us. Thank you that we can trust you because you are faithful and that nothing has ever happened outside of your control, nor will it ever. Thank you that we can rest in you that we can look back at what you've done for us in, in defeating the grave and in, 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 in taking our sin and nailing it to your cross, that we can look at your scars and know that we are forever in those scarred hands and we will never be dropped. 
God, I pray we would live not just with a false confidence, but we would live with that true hope that one day we're going to see you face to face and our exile will be over. We love you. We thank you for your goodness. It's in Christ's matchless name I pray. Amen. Would you stand as we close our time together?